Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 12, Ocean's Eleven from 2001. I am Tobin Addington. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And this movie I love. This was the movie coming into this podcast. I had seen the most of his. And I thought was my number one, but surprise of all surprises, I think I like Out of Sight slightly more than this movie. So that stunned me, but I still really, really love this movie. Yeah, I think we're all in the same boat there, right? We're all part of the same heist here. I also love this. You know, it's funny, when this first came out, I was kind of against seeing it for a really long time. I fought it because I just wasn't into remakes. I wasn't actually, like, as deeply immersed into film as I am now. I didn't know about Soderbergh and uh, a lot of actors here. But once I saw it, I was like, what was wrong with me? (laughs) It's just such a great time, and I, I don't think I ever, you know, actively resisted a movie since. There are very few movies that... I think are as fun to watch as they seem to be to make. And by all accounts, both what we see on screen and what you read about the making of this movie, they were just having a blast. And it, for me anyway, it totally comes across. This is, this is one of these movies that, you know, in my memory, I think, yeah, I like that movie a lot. And then I turn it on and I just start to grin. Um, <laughs> and so, so it, was really, it was really fun to, to see it again. This is a movie that there was a quote I found online that said Soderbergh said that the film was an opportunity to give audiences, quote, pleasure from beginning to end. And he wanted it to be, quote, a movie that you just surrender to without embarrassment and without regret. And another thing I read that was like, he didn't want anything really bad to happen to anybody. Like, this is a movie where, like, everything goes smoothly for the most part. Like, they run into hiccups, but, like, things are fine. And, like, you don't have to worry. Like, you just sit back. You're like, oh, these are all of my favorite people doing cool things, looking great, eating food the entire movie. <laughs> I, I just love it. Yeah, you really don't feel like there's any real threat or consequence. You're right, but it doesn't matter because it is such a fun time to watch. I, I kind of do feel a little bad for Benedict at the end because what did he really do? He he dated you know the wrong girl basically. Like he took the girl away from the wrong guy, and that guy came and robbed him. But everyone else gets away scot free, and you know has a laugh while they're doing it. And you're right, watching it, I never get any sense of like dread or suspense or any of that in any kind of negative way or anything. It's it's all just fun from beginning to end. Like you were just saying before, Tobin, was that it's it's fun on screen, but also fun behind the set that like they were playing poker on set. There's all these stories about who won or who lost. Apparently, Clooney lost something like 25 blackjack hands in a row, like something crazy. Like there's these stories about that. Uh, Soderbergh wanted everybody to really get along. And so they like in their off time, they would just sit around Carl Reiner and he would just tell stories about like old Hollywood. I mean, these people are going to be back for two more movies. These are people for the most part that we've seen with Soderbergh already who will return to his movies. So it does feel like everyone liked making this. Everybody took less money to make this movie because there's no way you could pay all these guys what they make and still come in with the studio budget. The only sort of point of contention that I heard at all or that I read at all about this movie was that Don Cheadle is uncredited in this movie because he wanted to be above the title and the studio or somebody was just like, no, like that's not going to happen. So he said, just take my name out of it altogether. But then for Ocean's 12 and Ocean's 13, he's back for both of those and he's above the title in those. So that was the only sort of negative, not nasty, but like not entirely like, hey, we're just a bunch of guys making a move. It seemed like that was the only thing where somebody stood out and was just like, I'm not happy with this. If that's all the drama that's on set, then I feel like they got away lucky. They got really lucky because, I mean, they're filming all over Vegas. And, you know, I just feel like a lot could go wrong (laughs) at any moment there. And you're dealing with a bunch of movie stars, right? I mean, the egos flying around could potentially sink this thing. Like, there have been a lot of big 
ensemble, get a whole bunch of famous actors together and, and, you know, <laughs> try to make a movie. And sometimes it works really well. And usually it doesn't. And, and for whatever reason, the alchemy of who was on set and how they were being, how the set was being run and the way the, the script is amazingly tight. I mean, this thing just flies uh, beautifully, I think. And it's, it's such a, it is a way to sort of have a, a giant cast of characters, give them all the moments they need. And still somehow the, the it all sort of hangs together and is funny. I, I just, I'm, I'm kind of in awe of the way that this, that they, that they pulled as much of this movie off as they did. Yeah, I also feel like at the time, now correct me if I'm wrong, but poker culture and card culture in Vegas was really like kind of everywhere. There was like poker tournaments on TV. Yeah. This kind of feels like it was feeding into that popularity a lot. And that's cool because a lot of this like Vegas culture stuff, like I ended up going like seven times between 2000 and 2010, you know, like I ended up loving that place. And I think part of it was the allure, you know, cast upon from this movie was like come to vegas it's fun and safe and you know pull off a heist i really wonder if that if this was riding that train or if this sort of helped kickstart that because i was super into poker on tv and playing poker with my friends and the two like the the really big world series of pokers were i think oh three and oh four in terms of like the the boom going from 100 entrants to like 700 and then to 2500 and like in terms of tv stuff and then you know it, it might have stuck around for like a year or two more and then it sort of really petered out but like i think this is either at the very start of that wave or maybe it helped kickstart it but like it's still in that era of like making cards and making vegas cool and you know showing even before they get to vegas when they're in hollywood and rusty brad pitt's character is teaching all of these teen idol tv stars how to play poker and you've got you know somebody from charmed and somebody from that 70s show and somebody from seventh heaven and whatever even there like it's these sort of celebrities who want to get in on the craze so i I think you're right it's it's definitely in that wave it's riding that wave i just don't know whether it, it helped kickstart it or was just sort of riding its coattails have either of you guys seen the original Ocean's Eleven? But are you guys familiar with any of the original version? No, isn't it bad? They're paratroopers, right? They're like former paratroopers or something? Yeah, and it's it's the Rat Pack. So it's like Sinatra and Dino and, uh, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. And it's basically like these guys, I guess, are like the Rat Pack of today. It's just a bunch of really close-knit friends that were all entertainers. Uh, those guys were all song and dance guys they all acted as well but i think they were all mostly known for singing and they got together and they made like a silly heist film that took place in vegas rob a casino only then like you couldn't get away with it i guess so and they don't really get away with their crimes in the way that these guys do but yeah it's it's not great i just recall this one song eo 11 that just gets drilled into your head sammy davis sings i remember frank sinatra's crazy sweaters but i was just curious if you guys knew about it at all because like technically this is a is a remake i I feel like it's much more of like an update well everything i've heard about it makes me not very interested to see it (laughs) i just i've never i've never been moved actually to actually watch it i think if I, I like I say I enjoyed this so much that when I finish this I'd rather go on to Ocean's Twelve than go go back and watch watch the previous one. I think there's something cool about the allure of old timey Hollywood like Frank Sinatra and all those like in this kind of movie, but there's also something 
I think even more appealing about like the glitz and glamour of like 2000 mainstream Hollywood that makes it better. You know what I mean? Like I think it's there's a lure to both. I think that like again, I I agree with you, Tobin. Like I love this movie. I've seen this movie probably 20 times, and I've never even thought about going to see the original. I would rather just watch the other ones, even if I don't love 12 as much as like 11 or 13 or whatever. I'd rather see the people that I like in this sort of world that Soderbergh has made as opposed to seeing a similar movie back in the olden days. And then in a little while, we're going to get Ocean's 8, right? They're going to do a girl team doing their house. But that's going to be. I think he's involved as like a producer, but it's supposed to be connected to the same universe. So they're expanding this franchise as we speak. Which is cool because this has been sort of dormant for a while, right? Like almost a decade, really. So, I mean, there, there is like a cool thing. Like you have, I don't know, four of the biggest movie stars. Of the, in the world, right? Like, you have Clooney and Pitt and Damon and Julia Roberts and a lot of other people on that next tier down. There's just something really awesome about that if everybody gets along, both for the movie goer and also the movie maker. Just, like, seeing all this talent and everybody's having a good time. And they know that they're not making something that's going to win awards, but they're still making a, a competent, fun movie. This is more than a competent movie. This is a really, really well-made movie. It's that, it, as Mike was saying before... Or maybe it was you, Joe, I can't remember. But he knows exactly what it is, right? This is a movie that is meant to be pleasurable. This is a movie that's meant to be light on its feet and just be entertaining from the beginning to the end. And I still believe... Okay, so the heist thing. Like, there are things that are that might be ridiculous, like getting stealing the pinch and blowing out the power. Like, there's ridiculous stuff. But I believe it in the world of the movie. And, and it's, it's sort of grounded by grounding it in the George Clooney-Julia Roberts relationship and and that having a sort of a history and a context and and them being having such good chemistry i think in the few scenes they have together i think people assume that it's harder to make like darker more serious uh, awardsy movies and i don't think that's true i think that this is probably as hard or harder to make than like a, a you know a straight drama I agree with that. I think that there's like this mentality. I guess there's two mentalities. There's there's the one that's right and there's the one that's wrong. And the one that's right is that most comedic actors can do drama, but it's really difficult to find dramatic actors who can do comedy. And I think across the board here, everybody's nailing it. I mean, it's not like Andy Garcia has to do anything funny here, but he's fitting in in a world that like he doesn't feel out of place. Yeah, and he he gets to be funny in a straight man way. Like there are times he's the others are playing off him, and he gives you know he'll give Saul, he'll give uh, you know Carl Reiner the sidelong glance. Like I don't know that I trust you. And given that Carl Reiner's playing the accent and the whole deal, you need that I, that sort of voice in there. It's it's not a showy part in this movie at all, right? Like it's it's the least showy of the <laughs> of the. He doesn't get to crack any jokes that make you laugh because that's not his like his point. But I think he does what he needs to do really well. But you're right, it's not he's not he's not funny, you know. He's not a haha funny. Yeah, for me, I think the scene that ultimately I was able to suspend my disbelief for the rest of the movie comes very early and it's the blueprint scene. If you guys know what I'm talking about when yep. him and Rusty first sort of meet up and decide to do this and they get caught stealing blueprints and they just say to the security guy, "We're just going to take these home overnight." And he's like, "Yeah, okay." So at that point, I realized they have access to just about anything they want. They have connections everywhere for just about everything. So I was able to sort of put all that out of my mind for the rest of the film. Ultimately, for me, this isn't really a heist film so much as it's like a comedy. And it yeah. feels almost more like a like 
one of those madcap comedies that maybe like a what's up doc that Bogdanovich made or something where it's just everything is manic and over the top and this isn't quite our reality you know everything is pushed to the extreme like you look at Elliot Gould you know he definitely just represents a specific era in in Vegas and like everybody is almost close to like an enhanced almost cartoonish version of themselves like you look at the twins for instance you know they're definitely like this Tweedledee Tweedledum kind of thing going on with those guys or something or like Abbott and Costello even so I feel like Soderbergh sort of surprised everyone or at least he surprised me in a way that Tarantino does a lot of times where I'm sort of expecting this straight up genre film and then I get something that's like very funny alongside it you know and that just helps it play so much better than as if it was played you know super straight like every other bank robbery or heist film the moment that gets me every time that it reminds me of that mike that's going to have that kind of tone to it is i think it's after the blueprint scene it's as they're getting in the elevator right and george Clooney gives some little speech and and it's it's the moment in the movie where the speech <laughs> where the little dramatic speech rousing the troops yep. would mm-hmm. be and then he stops yep. and pauses for a moment and he said he makes some joke about like did i rush that a little bit like i was i practiced and you know and they, then they get on the elevator and right and it's just it punctures that right like it lets you know this is a movie that's going to do both because that moment could have just just happened that could have just been a moment that Clooney and Clooney plays it really well and I believe it and then that they puncture it too it, it, that, that's what I mean about this being more sophisticated than it seems it's able it's able time and time again to give us both to give us sort of the heartfelt emotion the Hollywood movie sort of moment and then also sort of puncture it with humor and that's that's hard to do I wrote down that, but my notes for this movie are just like lists of things that I love. Like I didn't really like. It's not like they're not helpful, useful notes for what we're talking about. It's just scenes and moments that I love, like including that. And I think that there's throughout the entire movie, like Mike was saying, not only do they have connections everywhere, like the fact that somehow Clooney is in with Bruiser, who is, you know, Andy Garcia's muscle, and that he's able to use that to sort of escape and help with the heist or whatever. Like, from start to finish, they know everybody exactly, which is so totally fine because everybody is super charming. Like, why would you not want to be friends with these people? But at the same time, they use that charm to basically get everything that they want. Like, whether it's Bernie Mac, rest in peace, getting a discount on the vans through a handshake, whatever they need they're able to just ask for and get why would you not want to be in this world friends with a danny ocean or a rusty who like are criminals yeah but they're like so cool like they're just so cool criminals <laughs> is is there such thing as like an anti-criminal or something like there is as an anti-hero because that's almost how i take these guys to be like you're right they're the gentleman thief you do it with a handshake and a smile like we saw some of this i feel with ving rame's character in out of sight where he asked to help the old lady with her groceries and then kindly steals her car as well it's best not to draw attention to yourself or hurt people if you don't have to you just pay them off and explain to them it's for their benefit or something to that effect and and yeah it helps to look like Clooney or Brad Pitt or Don Cheadle or these guys like there's they could pour on the charm and throughout this series they each definitely get their moments when they come in and steal the scene or it's built around them and it's just great but what's also really cool is that like yeah like they're cool and they're Clooney and Pitt and like it helps to look like them or whatever but in this world they don't get stopped by fans, but Topher Grace can't escape the club. Like, it's just, it's these little sort of reversals, right? Like, they are cool and handsome and, like, able to get everything they want, but they're still just nobodies. Like, I don't know. It's just it's all these, like, little decisions, these little moments that just add up to this total package of a movie that I just cannot get enough of. 
Yeah, there's a real charm and playfulness to the a lot of the camera work too. The moment as the team is all assembling in Vegas, we or we get this like montage around Vegas, and there's some helicopter stuff, and there's some stuff from cars, and there's some stuff just standing on the street, and it's all handheld, and it all has this sort of slightly off kilter, just captured for fun. You're getting iconic scenery, right? Like you're getting to see the big casinos and the fountains and all that stuff. But it's not like the overly slick, you know, CSI shots of Vegas flying overhead. And it's not the like, we didn't have enough money, we're just riding in a car, swingers shots of Vegas. It's not even the rounder shots of Vegas. This is like, oh, we're just having a ball and let's run out and grab some shots of Vegas for fun. And yet it all feels sort of deliberate in a way. I'm not quite sure... But I, I think the time and again, the way that the thing is shot is as playful as the script is being with the actors. Most definitely. There, there's lots of wipes and pans and screen flips and stuff like that. You know, like he, he definitely is playful visually, too, you know, just to really hammer home the sense that like, like we're having fun. Like there's shots like there's lots of there's lots of long takes in these ocean movies, too, where you don't really notice it because the camera sort of whips from one guy over to like someone in the parking lot and then like it'll zoom out and it'll be Rusty and Danny sort of like talking while they're drinking coffee or something that's kind of like that so much of this plays out in like real time segments like that I think really helps the comedy play that that it's all just fast and loose but never sloppy we're here we're capturing it we're getting what we need and we're not going overboard but yet we're like we haven't missed anything either <laughs> we can form this scene and you know we can do it with like two or three shots and that's all it's going to take I think that the movie really benefits from being able to shoot in Las Vegas, too. Like, a lot of this stuff, like, they, there's some stuff that they built, but there's a lot of stuff is shot out there, and it just sort of adds to the authenticity and adds to sort of just, I think, the overall vibe and aesthetic of everything, that, like, the producers were friends with Steve Wynn, who used to own the hotels that they shot, they, they filmed in, and then... Steve Wynn sold those hotels to somebody else, but the producer was also friends with them. And, like, they shut down, like, the garage like, the underground garage where they shot some scenes and, like, even the high rollers that they use, like, the parking deck, they basically have, like, really, really great access to Las Vegas and the casinos, like, apparently even have access to the, the casino's security room and security tapes, like, that's all, like, authentic. So I think that there's just, there's something here that is special in terms of just letting people play in the actual playground as opposed to coming up with something that sort of looks like, sort of feels like Vegas. I gotta tell you, having stayed at the Bellagio a few times, like, it was really weird <laughs> watching this movie again, being like, oh, I've walked there, I've been there, I've stood where George Clooney and Brad Pitt have stood. That was kind of cool, too. But And then I think later on in Ocean's 13, they'll end up shooting at the Wynn, his new hotel, and they shoot up, like, a sort of hodgepodge it a little bit. They just, like, cut and paste, I think, at that point. Like, they just get full access to Vegas in that movie. But that is really great. And, you know, <laughs> I'm sure everybody wanted to play along, right? It's like, why wouldn't Steve Wynn give them total access? It's George Clooney, it's Steven Soderbergh. Like, these are Oscar-caliber people, and everyone's going to want to come to your hotel after they see this movie. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Like you've like we've been saying, they're they're just effortlessly cool. Like even when they're sort of being goofy, especially I mean Clooney especially is just a. I mean he is so suave in this movie and self-deprecating, but still suave. And I think that of course it's this is the biggest advertisement for for Vegas. You know that the 
screen has seen, you know? Like, this is a movie that for all kinds of people. And uh, I, I think that, yeah, it makes sense that they would have that kind of access. It's cool. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that they had access to the security room and things like that. That's that's interesting to see. Especially since I've heard, you know, it's illegal to steal shots on the Strip and around Vegas. Like, I had heard that it's, like, notoriously hard to shoot there. So, like, with that recent Bourne film, they did that crazy chase down the, the Strip and had to shut it down overnight and stuff. Yeah, but, like, when you're dealing with Steve Wynn, who's, like, the most powerful man in Vegas, like, literally more powerful than the governor, like, he just owns everything. You know, if, if he wants you to be in his casino, it's like, you'll be, you know what I mean? Like, he'll override whatever opposition there is to anything, just like, oh, yeah, you know, Steve and all your guys, come on in, like, let's just, let's have a, let's have a good time. So this is a, another movie. I don't know if it would have worked well. I don't think it would have, because I like the way that it looks, but this is another movie that Soderbergh wanted to shoot in black and white. Oh, wow. I feel like we've had a few of those. I mean, he shot one or two in black and white. He gets a black and white sequence here real quick. The first of the three stories that Elliot Gould tells him about the people trying to rob Vegas is in black (laughs) and white. So he got got one little bit. And the producers were like, well, if you can, like, significantly bring down your budget, like, we can do black and white. He's just like, nah, like, we'll do in color. It's funny that, like, we're 12 episodes in, and I feel like that's something that he's wanted in, like, three or four different things. Like, I guess he just can't quit feeling like he wants to make things in black and white, even though producers every time are like, nobody's going to see this. It's just, it's a different feel, it's a different vibe. Like, I know why you want, especially as a remake of an older movie, just let it be in color, because I think it looks so great. Like, it's so saturated, and it's so vivid, and it's just, it like, the color is such a key part of this, that to make it black and white would have been a completely different thing. He will get what he asks for and kind of pay for it when he does the good German when we get to there. You know, he'll get his black and white and he'll kind of have to eat that cake alone, I think. Um, But you're right. Like this, this to me felt like the color was part of the design from the start. You know, like there's scenes that are all red. There's scenes that are all blue. There's scenes where like clearly certain colors are supposed to be keying in on, you know, like uh, Matt Damon is on the subway and everyone's sort of wearing gray, but he's wearing the red hat, you know, like there's all these little bits in there. So maybe after he just really embraced it and was like, all right, if they want color, (laughs) I'm going to play around with it. Yeah, I would be curious to know how deeply he thought about that. If, if that was a, oh, this would be interesting, you shoot in black and white and thought about it a little bit longer and thought, no, never mind. <laughs> or if it's something you really pursued, because I, I have a hard time. I don't fetishize black and white. I don't mind it, but I don't I don't fetishize the way some filmmakers do. And I, I can't imagine this movie in black and white. I, I'm very glad that they didn't go that route. Because I think, like we said, like you know, the color works so well, and so do the like the flashback. Not only Mike, what you said about like the black and white flashback, but like every time that we're talking about something that happened in the past, or like seeing Matt Damon on that you know elevated streetcar, there's like that juddery, you know what I mean? Like, and that mm-hmm. sort of is like speed, a yeah. yeah, like that works with the color too. But, like I feel like if you did black and white and that, like it wouldn't work. And just I'm glad that it is the way it is because without it, you know, it feels like you'd be taking tools out of his toolbox. He's got so many toys to play with in terms of exposure, in terms of color, in terms of whatever, that by just doing a black and white, you're like, this is the choice I'm committing to, and I'm not doing anything else with it. So we've seen a couple different times, like, you know, he's able to do things with the way that he makes scenes or timelines look and feel, that to make your whole thing just, boring's not the right word, but boring, you know what I mean? But if you're going to shoot in Vegas, Vegas is neon, you know, it's all the lights, like, maybe he just suggested it as a joke to see if they were going to say yes and then it was going to be like no no I'm, I'm just kidding like come on we're shooting in vegas here it's it's a it's you know it's a color mecca i really have no idea you know this movie in black and white would 
I think it would lose a lot of the comedy and maybe feel a little too noirish and just yeah, it would be off tone for for what we ended up with anyway. For something that he wanted the audience to just you know kind of like turn your brain off and and sit back, relax, and just enjoy the show and and like you're not going to have to think too hard, but by the end you're going to feel like really smart because it's an intricate plot that is kind of easy to follow. You know, like there's all these like other little tricks and tips that I don't feel would have worked if if all the color was muted. Another thing that he's done in past movies that we talked about a couple different episodes that he sort of uses again here but in a different way is that non-linear editing style but like it's straightforward or it seems straightforward and then you sort of understand as Andy Garcia realizes that like he's been watching tapes and so I feel like at this point in his career, especially as we're going through and sort of paying careful attention to all the tricks that he's doing both as director and editor and such, that I like that it's linear editing, but it's non-linear storytelling, sort of, right? It feels straightforward, but it's not quite. And, like, it works, and the reveal is great, and I feel like I'm still a little fuzzy on the exact timeline of things, even though they show you, but at the end, like, it doesn't matter. Like, we just know that the, the good guys got away with all the money. Yeah, well, I feel like with them building the safe, the main thing he did for me with that is telling you, now that they have a copy of the safe, your imagination can run wild. Like, whatever they do, you could see them thinking of. So, for instance, like, the idea that is that they taped the heist and then run it back for the people in the casino to see while they're actually robbing the bank. And I think, I think like, that is just what he does is, like, he, he introduces, like, the concept and then leaves out, like, what they end up doing with it entirely. You know, like, you see them practicing in the vault and stuff, but you're like, oh, they're just practicing. But by the end, when you realize they've been videotaping this and trying to perform it and everything to fool them, you get it. You're like, oh, okay, like, I, that makes sense, you know? Like, you might think of it immediately, but... But it's definitely within the realm of possibility. Um, I don't feel like that was like a large leap at the end there. Also, it was kind of funny that he worked in videotapes into this movie, which is <laughs> one of his staples. And there are lies. There's not much sex. I guess there's sort of implied sex, but there are a lot of lies. So two out of three ain't so bad. Another connection that I had seeing it this time that I hadn't thought of before, obviously it's, it goes deeper than this, but there's a couple of really fun pair, well, three really, or two at least, uh, like there's the Scott Con Casey Affleck pairing, which is often played for for comedy. Well, almost always played for comedy, and I think they are quite funny together. And then yeah. there's um, the two goons that they look like twins, right? Andy Garcia's goons, and both of those pairings remind me of the assistants in Kafka, the twins that were that he used so well for background comedy, just like. Uh, funny things happening in the background. I, I, it was I never would have made that connection if we hadn't been moving through the movies this way. That was fun to see. So those twins were apparently originally supposed to be Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson. Oh, wow. But they both dropped out to do the Royal Tenenbaums, and Danny Glover was supposed to be the Bernie Mac role, but he left to do Royal Tenenbaums too. So this could have wow. been – I mean, there's, there's a lot of different almost could have, would have, should have been – cast in this movie. We can go through it if you want it all now. There's a whole lot of stuff, because when you have a movie with, like, 15 main people, and they're all, like, names, like, yeah, there's a chance, but, like, I thought it would have been cool to have two brothers in those roles, as opposed to just sort of two lesser famous family members. You know what I mean? Casey's got Ben, and Scott has James, right? So, like, you know, father, son, and brother, brother. There's also apparently a rumor that Ben Affleck is in this movie somewhere, but he's not. He was on set, but, like, it feels like the kind of movie where he'd be, like, in an elevator or something. You know what I mean? Just sort of popping in, but he's not. So if you think that, you're wrong. I think, for me, casting-wise, like, I still want Matt Damon in this movie somewhere, but I just felt like his character 
may have needed to be portrayed to be maybe just a little younger. Maybe like I thought he was supposed to be like maybe 21 or 22, whereas Damon looks more like 31 or 32 to me. And I thought maybe if Affleck played him and he played brothers with Scott Kahn, that dynamic may have worked as well. So that role, the Linus role, there's two other names that I have here that were originally considered. There was somebody that was like, it was, I think it was basically written for who had to drop out. They're both really big names. Leonardo DiCaprio. Nope. No, I was only thinking actually Tobey Maguire actually this time watching it. I was like, man, I could buy that, but that's it. So there's one that was definitely big in 2000. I think this other guy was big in 2000. He's definitely really big now. It was written for Mark Wahlberg. No kidding. Oh, wow. And Johnny Depp was also considered for it. Oh, I could see Mark Wahlberg. Depp is even older than Matt Damon, so I don't want to see that. Right, which I... is why, like, I agree with you that like it, it sort of feels like it could be, you know, a Goodwill Hunting sort of style Matt Damon as opposed to somebody older. But I don't know. Like, he's sort of like in terms of, like the, he doesn't have like facial hair. I think he, they try to make him look younger, but yeah, it well, he feel definitely like a passes character. for his role in the scheme. You know, like he plays. He's supposed to play like a bank, uh, someone from like the board, right? Like the uh, gambling board or something. Like so, he's he's playing like a banker, and like he definitely can fit that role too. So I mean, that's well performed. Oh, Mark Wahlberg turned it down to do Planet of the Apes, so that was oh, really no. a good decision. Well, and also that we are only three years away from Saving Private Ryan, right? Like he, he's not – he hasn't done Born Identity yet. So I don't think we would have thought of him at the time as an equal to Clooney. And I think now we look at it and say, oh, it's Brad Pitt, Clooney, and Matt Damon. And I think it was at the time, it's Clooney, Brad Pitt, oh, and Matt Damon. You know what I mean? Like he hadn't done what, what he would go on to do, I think. Well, he had done Rounders by this point. He had done Goodwill Hunting by this point. I mean, he'd been in well, stuff. Yeah, Goodwill Hunting. He was young. That's that's four years before. Yeah, I mean, he's just not—he's not superstar, but he's still. I think he's worthy of being above the title. Or you whatever. know, I, I like what they do with his character in in subsequent sequels. So I'll I'll save <laughs> save it for that. I the, the character that that I on this viewing finally admitted to myself that I did not really like was the Don Cheadle character. Maybe it's not the character. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's the way. Maybe it's the performance. It feels to me a little bit like he's trying to do like a Benicio did in Usual Suspects. Right, like throw in an accent just to be a little, a little crazy, just to set yourself apart. Now, maybe that's not true. Maybe, maybe that was it was all written that way, whatever. But it, it felt a little desperate to me. He's the only one who didn't feel as effortless, and I don't love him in these movies. I love the concept of the character. It's, it's too bad that they couldn't get someone from like a Guy Ritchie film because that's what the character feels like he belongs in like a Guy Ritchie movie so I wish they had gotten someone from a Guy Ritchie movie who actually was British that could uh, do the actual accent I I think he pulls it off I think he's a fun addition and you know as the explosive expert and everything and um, but that Cockney stuff does kind of wear thin faster than usual like I could go the distance with the limey you know spouting off the Cockney phrases and the cryptic stuff but it gets when we're pulling off this heist we need like information and you know everyone else is being super clear and concise it's like get to it already like just tell me what's happening in English well, so first off, I want to say that we do have somebody from a Guy Ritchie movie. We have Brad Pitt, so that sort of counts, right? Okay, <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because he ended up doing that crazy, wacky sort of uh, accent in Snatched. Yeah. yeah. Yep. That's that's what I mean. Yeah. But let me let's let's correct that to Snatch, not Snatch, the terrible, terrible Amy Schumer movie from this year. Let's. Oh, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I forgot that movie even existed. So. Oh, it's bad. <laughs> What's weird is that like Don Cheadle like went to London to study the Cockney accent. 
accent, and like he speaks in like this rhyming parlance, and like you know the Barney Barney Rubble Trouble. There's decisions being made, and it does sort of feel out of place. I like it, but. I mean, aside from Ruben, you know, who's like this just over-the-top Jewish caricature sort of, right? Everybody else just sort of speaks normally until Saul goes into his Lyman Zerga phase. I, I like it, but it also does sort of feel weird, especially because Don Cheadle, he has such a cool, like, cadence to his normal voice. You know what yeah. I mean? Also, apparently, I, I, I saw that, you know, he hated it or somebody hated it. And he, like, I think Don Cheadle hated his accent. He wasn't happy with it. And he wanted to drop it for the second movie and the third movie. But the producers were like, no, you have to keep it. So, like, he knows that it's sort of like a weird choice or that he didn't nail it the way he wanted to. But I, I think what it does to serve best and and Soderbergh's really great at doing stuff like this but this might just have been a misstep is like each of these guys are really quickly and easily definable Rusty's always eating and Cheadle's got the accent Carl Reiner's got the hat and you know all they all have their little things and you know the acrobat he's sort of like the Chewbacca right like they all understand him but he doesn't speak English and so I almost feel like this is just we needed Basher to have an extra sort of eye patch you know he had his limp because he's the explosive expert but he needed an eye patch too and so they gave him an accent to just be like all right even if he's on a walkie-talkie we can understand who we're listening to yeah I think I think I prefer for Don Cheadle when he's doing stuff more like he does in traffic. Not that it's not funny, but that the funny is grounded in sort of an everyman kind of thing. So to see him put on a bunch of to, to affect stuff, that just rings a little hollow to me. I can sort of see him acting in a way that I don't with, with the other sort of more naturalistic performances here. And going to Yen for a second, not only does he not the characters, they understand him or whatever, but like he doesn't speak English. Like they just found him performing in a Las Vegas group. So they had a translator on set so that he could communicate with everybody so that they could tell him what to do as an actor. Oh, wow. So that's kind of cool. But what I also really like about his character is that he has like no lines in the movie, but he gets the one PG-13 F-bomb. Like it's just, <laughs> it's so fitting for him. Like he doesn't speak English and then he's just like, where the fuck you been? Like what? Like just so frustrated. Just it's perfect. Like I really, really like that. Like everybody's got this specific part to play and his is just, he can do this one thing and then like the sort of the team lets him down a little bit and he's just frustrated. So that's great. That's a great example of Soderbergh's sort of comic timing, too, is to give the one guy who can't speak English the, the F-bomb. <laughs> you know who else I love in this movie that I don't remember? I don't think of it before watching it. But I, in this viewing, I thought Julia Roberts was wonderful. And in a part that's a little... It's not quite thankless, but she doesn't get any fun stuff to do, right? Like, she gets to be sort of upset most of the time. And that's a hard thing to pull off. Uh, and also to sort of be the prize, right? Like, it's a little... And, and, the, and the, the Linus's line when she's when she first appears, when he says, this is the best part of my day, and she shows up and walks <laughs> down the stairs, when he, of course, doesn't know, right? He's standing there with Rusty, Rusty sees her, and is like, oh, God, now I know what this is all about. And then her scene, Julia's first scene with Clooney, they have such great chemistry. I think, and I love her. They have these quips back and forth, right? Like now we are in screwball comedy territory, but there's like pain underneath it, you know. So she said, or he says, you know, asking about Benedict, like, does he make you laugh? And she look, gets close to him and says, he doesn't make me cry. And the way that they that she just sort of nails him in that moment, and I, I, we understand him and the heist and so much more based on how I think how sort of beautifully she's playing those scenes. 
and she had never met Clooney before this movie. So for the oh, fact that really? they had such good chemistry that quickly, yeah. I like her in this. I'm going to like her more in the sequels where she gets to sort of sort of uh-huh. spoof on herself a little bit, and we'll get to that you know, down the road. But I don't want to say she's underwhelming in this, but she's such a force in nature in Erin Brockovich that it's like hard to sort of reconcile that it's the same actress in the same director's move. She's yeah. not given anything to do here, so it's not her fault. It's just that she's she put on what might be like the best performance I've ever seen, and then here she's kind of like even more of a straight man than Andy Garcia, just with that like underlying pain. It's difficult to really give her the credit she deserves just because she's not an afterthought because she's at the emotional core of all this but like in terms of the entertainment nobody's gonna walk away from this movie saying like you know who i really loved in this is julia roberts like she was great in this movie well i think that's because right she has to carry all the weight basically like she's the only one for the most part that isn't running around having fun even andy garcia is running around meeting and greeting all the customers and going to the fights and this and that and like she is waiting around for him most of the time and then at the gallery it's kind of unfortunate that yeah she has sort of the least stuff to do just by virtue of her character it's unfortunate i almost would want her to be part of the heist crew and we get another woman to play her role who's like sort of just because it's more subdued but for what it is you're right like she's an extremely strong presence and i think that helps enormously um i feel her scorn you know and like i know that she's pissed and she's right now she doesn't love any of her options and she doesn't say any of that, right? Like, directly, but it all comes across. And so, for maybe a role that's this small but this important, I think they got the right person for it. And you need somebody with a huge name, right? I mean, given that the movie is loaded with stars, you need a star to come in and play a thankless part. And the fact that she then is able to, with all these silent scenes or scenes where there's no dialogue, where we see her sort of, you know, trying to make this relationship with Benedict work, and it's just not. He's just, clearly, they're, they're not meant for each other. I just think that, that they play those very well. And I, oh, I do wonder, though, how she ended up with, with him. <laughs> How does she end up with Andy Garcia? You know what I mean? Like, I get that she's a curator, and if he is sort of modeled on a Steve Wynn-type character, then he would have, you know, he'd be buying all kinds of wonderful art, and they probably would have met before, and blah, 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 blah. But I don't know how she has stayed with him as long as she, she seems to have. He's as far from George Clooney as she could get. And so it's like, so he broke my heart, and so I'm never going to do that again, so what's the opposite of that? And then there's this guy who, like, instead of feeling too much, like, feels nothing at all and is more about the money. Yeah. He he might not be as attentive, but he, like she says, like, he won't make her cry. Like, he's just sort of so neutral that there's not these, like, crazy swings back and forth. I found, um, I was like, well, he's Danny's doppelganger, you know, like he's the one with all the legitimate money and he's the legitimate crime guy. And, you know, like he can give her everything she wants and she can kind of tell herself like, oh, well, I've got this, like the man in my life is doing this the right way. And they also kind of look similar. And then there's Danny who does everything (laughs) the opposite. Like you said, like he's trying to rob guys like Benedict to get his uh, living and to earn his way. This time around, I I definitely saw that parallel for her like she's looking at the two of them going like almost two sides to the same coin here do you guys know who danny ocean was originally supposed to be who was cast as danny ocean before he had to pull out due to scheduling conflicts who he appears as a cameo in 12 bruce willis Bruce Willis was going to be oh, Danny Ocean? No, yep. no. I could see him doing Rusty better than Danny, <laughs> to be honest. Wow, I, I don't know if that would have worked. 
No, because just George Clooney is just so good in this movie. And, you know, we were talking about during when we, when we did the Out of Sight episode about how that that's sort of like a prequel to this. And, like, this is – it feels the same way. Like, he's sort of the same kind of character, like, just the coolest criminal. And in both movies, he knows that the trajectory he takes is going to put him right back in prison or likely put him back in prison. He's still going to do it anyway. And he's still going to make it fun and still going to get the girl and – I can't see anyone else but him in that role. I just love him in that. Yeah, he. this is a perfect role for him. This this plays to all of his strengths, from the self-deprecating to the suaveness that I've talked about earlier. There's also a tying back to movies that we've covered before, specifically Aaron Brockovich. This movie starts basically like Aaron Brockovich. It's a shot of George Clooney being interviewed and we never see the parole board he's talking to. We just see, you know, these sort of ever getting closer shots of him as he's sort of telling him he's not going <laughs> to, or, or, or being asked if he's going to offend again, right? And we're also learning about his history. We're getting exposition about him and about his wife and or an ex-wife and all this, this stuff. And I think that that's, again, not something I would have noticed had we not been going through the movies chronologically, but it does a striking similarity to the opening scene of Aaron Brockovich. And there is that, I don't know if it's a famous line, but there's a line cut from that scene that was in the trailer about like, how much do you guys get paid? Which I never knew why they got rid of that because I was like, that's such a cool line for him to say, just sort of him being like this wise-ass parolee, right? But apparently they found out that like if a potential parolee said that to the board, he would have been denied. So like they're like, well, we need to let him out. We need to actually you know get on with the movie. Uh, so I, I just think that from the beginning, you're right. We know who he is and sort of his outlook on life, why he's imprisoned, and his past pain. And we also sort of get a little bit of a flash forward, sort of, and he's just like, you know, she's not going to leave me again just for kicks. But like, you know, now they're together at the end of the movie. So like, maybe she will leave him again. Who knows? You have to come back for Ocean's 12. Yeah, it was kind of funny to see Clooney with the goatee in the opening there. That was an interesting look for him, I thought. And, uh, and, and one of my favorite details about Danny Ocean is that he was arrested in a tuxedo. And at the end of the movie, he was, again, arrested in a tuxedo. And <laughs> so like, he's walking out of jail in one and then he's going into jail wearing one at the end so i thought that was pretty funny and then also leads to the line that apparently soderbergh improvised on set that rusty says i hope you were the groom like <laughs> you know that actually brings up another thing that i read about was that there's like and i think it's just good filmmaking and again before when i said it's a competent movie i didn't mean it as an insult i meant just like you know we're not making an oscar bait movie we're just making a good movie is that not only is it bookended with the tuxedos, but it's also bookended that the same song plays right before they hear Danny and Rusty's plan for the theft, and the same song plays when they're staring at the fountain at the end. So it's like before the crime, after the crime. And I just think it's cool. Like this is a nice little touch that it's sort of compressed within this song is this one shared experience for these 11 or 12 or 13 people. It's a nice symmetry. Like, even if you don't notice it, you feel it. It feels like this is very well constructed. Um, even though, and that's amazing. Like, I almost wonder if they were like, okay, we're just going to have some fun, that the pressure was off, and that they were able to really just come up with lots of fun, cool things to do, and that, like, ideas would just pop in, and everyone was on, for the most part, it seems like everyone was on the same page. So it's just so good because you, you also hear of times where this just goes tragically wrong. 
we may or may not get there in this series. I personally don't think we get that far, but you know, there's other times where you hear people in the making of the movie and they're like, oh, it was the best. It was like being a camp and this and that. And then you see the movie and you're like, well, it should have felt fun. like you were yeah. making a movie, you know? <laughs> like, right, like, why don't you do your job next time? <laughs> but good for these guys to be able to work and play at the same time and produce something like really good. I do remember an interview from the time the movie was coming out where I think it was Clooney telling the story that he and Damon were out playing poker really, really late and getting pretty drunk. And then we looked at their watch and realized they had to be like on set in like three hours. So they went up to their rooms and went to sleep and then came back down and looked at each other and said, I don't feel hungover. Do you? And he said, no, I don't either. And then an hour later, they realized it's because they were still drunk. <laughs> I would love to know what scene they were shooting at that at that moment. Anyway, it, do, it does sound like it was a, a fun time. And, you know, we've seen Soderbergh go through the trajectory of his career where he comes out of the gate strong and then makes some, in his mind, missteps and then reinvents himself through Schizopolis and Out of Sight and Brockovich's and traffic, allowing more and more freedom within the making of the movie, playing with improv, trusting his instincts in a way. And I think that totally pays off here. I think you get this movie to the caliber that it is in the way it was made because Soderbergh had done what he'd done before. There's a lot of notes on IMDb about how much was improv, both lines and jokes and sort of gestures, like when Basher pulls the pinch and like he sort of like covers his balls and sort of turns away a little bit, you know what I mean? Like, that was improv, and so, like, there's a real sense that he's letting them play, but also he knows when that's going to work and when that's not going to work, and it's not like a guy making his first or second or third movie. Like, this is the 12th thing that we're covering, you know, it's at least his 10th movie, if then his 11th movie, right? So, he's been around sets for a while, he knows when stuff's going well, and he also, I think, feels that responsibility that this is a really big budget movie, I'm not going to screw around, I'm going to let people have fun and make the choices they want to make, but if things get out of hand, like, let's reel it in. But it does work, and it feels light and fun and great. It just seems like he's supremely confident at this point to make anything. And, you know, to pull this off, like all the egos we mentioned and just all the logistics and all the permission and all of the pleasing of the studio and just to do that and to also produce something that you're proud of that you want out there and that the public love. Like he's just like at the top of his game, I feel, at this point, you know, coming off of stuff like the double whammy, I guess, of Brockovich and Traffic and then sort of developing the newish kind of running gun sort of style for a while like definitely applying that to, to this and then mixing it with tracking shots and every trick in the book almost right like it feels like he's he's gone back into that box and like he's using all the tricks he he pulls off and then starts using in schizopolis but here he's applying all of that to like a major motion picture and for further proof, I think, which sort of ties in with this, it's just mostly something that I just want to talk about because I love it in the movie, that they did work on set is that the reason why Brad Pitt is eating throughout this entire movie is that apparently they were working so hard and working such long hours that they didn't even have a chance to like stop and break to eat. And so he was just grabbing and just scarfing something down at the end of the day and was like, hey, you know, like these guys, like the characters in the movie are working so hard and doing so much that whenever they have a down moment at all, they'd probably be stuffing their face with something too. So he decided that like basically whenever he's standing waiting for something, he's eating nachos or he's eating buffalo wings or he's eating a lollipop or whatever. Like he eats like eight or nine different things in this movie just because those are the only moments of downtime as they're planning this elaborate, elaborate heist. 
Two of my favorite things he consumes. One is a Red Bull. I don't even know if that's still on the market or not, but um, I remember Red Bull. Like, that was so huge. Yeah, they're still around. Um, they're still around? Okay. But yeah. that, those were, like, at the beginning of energy drinks, I feel. And then the shrimp cocktail. <laughs> oh, I, I have a good thing about that, too. <laughs> cupping the shrimp cocktail. I'm like, that's just, like, people don't walk. That's why they don't walk around... <laughs> eating shrimp cocktails. <laughs> so they did so many takes of that scene. That's the scene where Linus is like, this is the best part of my day, and Julia Roberts walks down the stairs. They did that so many times that he wound up eating 40 shrimp. So not only is he eating a shrimp cocktail, but he's eating a ton of shrimp cocktail. So good on you, Brad Pitt. Well, then he must have drank like 40 Red Bulls or something. <laughs> So this is a big thing that, like, I never really put two and two together in terms of what exactly it meant, but there's that long line where I think it might be in the blueprint scene, or it's around the blueprint scene, where Rusty says, off the top of my head, I'd say you're looking at a Boxy, a Jim Brown, a Miss Daisy, two Jethro's, and a Leon Spinks, not to mention the biggest Ella Fitzgerald ever. And so that was something that came, that Soderbergh and Griffin, the screenwriter... Ted Griffin, who wrote Matchstick Men, shout out to Cage Club, and also created one of my favorite shows of the last five or ten years, Terriers, he and Soderbergh came up with this list, and the breakdown is that Boski is Ivan Boski, a big-time trader on Wall Street who got caught committing securities fraud. So that's Saul. He's sort of like, you know, an insider information bankroller. So that's Saul as Lyman Zerga. Jim Brown is the confrontation between Frank and Linus to distract Terry Benedict so that Linus can lift security codes, named after the football player. Miss Daisy is the SWAT vehicle uses the getaway car after driving Miss Daisy. Two Jethros are the Beverly Hillbillies, the <laughs> Malloy brothers. Yeah. So they're the Hillbilly gearhead types hired to take care of Miss Daisy. Distraction purposes and for general two-man work. Leon Spinks is the disruption of the boxing match. He's some guy who beat Muhammad Ali in a very unexpected fight. And then Ella Fitzgerald is the looped tape of the robbery because in the 1970s commercial for Memorex, her voice breaks glass and they say, is it live or is it Memorex? And so what's really cool about that is that they know exactly what each other means. And this other thing that I read was that Ted Griffin said that he loved movies like The Magnificent Seven and and The Great Escape because the people in those movies all had a shorthand that like they, they each understood each other, but no one else did. And so for Brad Pitt to say to George Clooney, this is what we need, and for Clooney to be like, yep, like we're going to get it. And we, as the audience, have no idea what they're talking about. It's just further proof that these guys are super cool. And it's also further proof when they have the 10 guys and Brad Pitt's got his head on the bar and Clooney's just sort of having that conversation on both sides of the conversation, that like they know each other so well that like Brad Pitt doesn't even have to move or say anything, and Clooney knows that they need one more. I love their relationship. Like, I want infinite movies with just, not those actors, but those characters, like the way that they interact. I want to know where they came from. I want to know where they go. I want to know everything in the between. Well, and I want a friend like that. I like, <laughs> I have, <laughs> you know, envy of that, that the ability to give each other shit and mutual love and respect and camaraderie. And as you say, the, my third note in my notes here was that the jargon is great. And the line I the whole, I didn't write the whole thing down, but the, the biggest Ella Fitzgerald the world has ever seen. And you're right. We don't need to know at the time what that means. It's so clear that they know. It just sort of – it's a window into a much wider world. Like they have such history and there's such context to their relationship and the sort of con world that they're involved in. And, and all you need to do is tell us that. I totally agree. I love it when movies do that. It tells us so much about them as characters. It's not just about what's good for the plot of the movie, but it, it tells us a lot about them. Soderbergh in language has totally been a thing throughout all of his films. It's like screwing with 
the way people talk, not just Schizopolis, but like in other films as well. And I feel like he's doing that here again, and it's terrific. And it's like, yeah, they're talking in code, but we know what they're talking about to a degree enough to understand what's happening. Yes, there's definitely mystery to trying to crack what their code means and everything, but you you don't feel like you're out of the loop. You feel like we want you to be part of the crew, so we're just going to treat you like part of the crew, and you get to jump in by, with both feet. And like this is we're not going to sugarcoat it or anything. So I love that about this movie. Um, like right from the start, even when he goes to meet like Bernie Mac, there's like an unspoken thing between like they just recognize each other, and like since everybody recognizes each other, they can talk like they don't know each other if they have to, and they can you know speak in these cryptic codes if they need to and it's what helps Brad Pitt get Basher out of being arrested for the bank yes. robbery right yeah. like right, it's right. just moments like that where it really pays off that was exactly the moment I was trying to think of before that another way that Brad Pitt just sort of talks his way out of something is he's able to take a criminal who's handcuffed away from cops just by sort of sounding like he knows what he's talking about and sort of speaking that jargon like you were saying, Mike, and just feeling like he should be there, like act the part, really. And there he would just walk the guy away. Like, it's crazy that that happens. But in this world, it's like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, if you find somebody who has that overcoat on and shows what looks like a badge, yeah, he's probably a detective, whatever. He's probably with ATF or whatever he claims to be with. Sure, why not? I love that moment so much. And I would do the same thing that cop does. I'd turn over the guy in a heartbeat. I'm not going to argue with the guy in the trench coat with the badge. One thing I do want to say before we get into more in trivia is that it takes a while, which I think is why it works, but when they're introducing the gang after they talk about what they need and they sort of cut from scene to scene and you have like Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn in the monster truck and the RV monster truck and like all those different scenes where you get the taste of who they are. I couldn't help but think again, and I I feel like every time we see one of these, I make the same reference, but, like, a movie like Suicide Squad could do so much better to learn from this. Like, instead of giving, like, five seconds to a character, show them in a scene, like, show them in the world, show us who they are, and we know, like, it takes maybe five or six minutes total, but by the end of that, we know their entire crew. Like, we know everybody there is, and who they are, and what role they play, and how they're going to be a pain in the ass. Like, it's just great. Yeah, they, they kind of, the characters are, are asserted. You know, there's not a lot of throat clearing. There's no time for throat clearing in this movie. We've got so many characters to introduce. They just sort of show us, and that's the key, right? They show us exactly who they are as, as they're introduced, and it, it's just a model for anybody looking to write a movie with this many characters or even like half this many characters. The wig that Brad Pitt wears when he's the doctor was the Mike Myers rehearsal wig for Austin Powers. So that's a nice little thing. In terms of other Soderbergh connections, we said that, you know, all the actors obviously are back. David Holmes is back from out of sight as the composer and he'll return for the sequels in Haywire. The editor worked on Traffic. He'll come back for the sequels. He'll be back for The Informant and Contagion. So not only is it people in front of the camera, but people behind the camera, he's going to work with them again. Oh, and the other thing about the music is that they wanted a song for Elvis that wasn't Viva Las Vegas, and so they did A Little Less Conversation, which was remixed, I think, by Paul Oakenfold, and it became like a really big hit that I've heard in a bunch of other things, too. So that was a nice little... I'm sure that's the same guy who's composing, also maybe picking songs, possibly, but it works really well. There's one other moment. Uh, the last thing in my notes is a moment. I don't know why it makes me laugh so much, and, and I, I feel a little bad for it, for laughing, but I think we're supposed to. The... Lights go off, the the power goes out all over Vegas, 
and then when they come back on, pandemonium has ensued in the like down on the on the floor. Yes. And we just get a few little shots of like people just going nuts. And there's this one we have this tracking shot with this waitress. We're like moving left to right with this waitress, <laughs> and she just gets clotheslined by yep. by somebody and everything and then it cuts away. Like it's maybe a three second shot, if that, maybe two seconds. And it just makes me laugh so much. And then later on when the when the SWAT team is leaving everything seems to be back to normal in the casino. Like everybody's sort of like, that's, that's what this movie, that's what this movie is. That's what it does. It does so well. And it, it, in some senses, you could guess that that might be actually what would happen in Vegas. Like, okay, we're going to get back to business now. But the clotheslining of that waitress makes me giggle every time I see it. I always laugh also when Lennox Lewis starts punching again in the boxing match. The lights come on and the boxers just go right at it again. Pandemonium. A few other things... Brett Ratner was at one point set to direct this movie. Oh, man. So I think we dodged a bullet, even though we both loved... I mean, he might have been just coming off The Family Man, so we both loved that for Cage Club. He ended up doing that that Ben Stiller heist film. Was Eddie Murphy in that? Yeah, it was Eddie Murphy and Ben Stiller, and they were robbing Alan Alda in New York City because it was like a Bernie Madoff kind of situation. That Anyway, I don't think he was able to really that, that's that. That's the same writer, success. too. That's that's this Ted Griffin. No kidding. Yeah, Tower Heist, right? Yeah, Tower Heist. All right, so he got his shot. George Clooney sent Julia Roberts a copy of the script with a $20 bill on it, and he added a note said, like, I hear you're getting 20 per picture now, because she had made $20 million for Aaron Brockovich, so what a prankster. Also in terms of George Clooney pranks, because, you know, famous on set for being a prankster. Oh, totally, totally. The most famous prankster. The most famous prankster, which I kind of love these stories, but I also kind of hate that, like, everybody loves them. You know, it's just this weird... Oh, but... it's total tabloid, like, people yes. magazine trash that I'd never want to be a part of, but I can't help it sometimes. <laughs> One thing that I read was that he and a bunch of other people on set would set 5 a.m. wake-up calls for Julia Roberts, like, total, total classic funny move. Just like when she didn't have to be up at 5, like, you know, making her wake up at 5, so... That that doesn't seem, like, funny when you're a working actor. <laughs> like, I mean, I could understand, you know, stealing the ice. Or, like, the, the most famous George Clooney prank of all, I think, is, like, when he was house-sitting for a friend and kept scooping the cat's poop. Do you remember, do you know the story? That It's something like, he was cat-sitting or something, or house-sitting, and he, every time the cat went to the litter box, he would scoop the poop out really quick, and his friend got really, really worried, because he never saw his cat poop, that the cat was sick or something and then George Clooney classic prankster pooped in the box himself oh my god so <laughs> so that's you know classic Clooney oh um, my god. I don't know what I don't know when in that career but that's like the, I think the most famous example of Clooney prankster John Favreau was offered to write the screenplay but he turned it down oh that's that's definitely off of his swingers yeah. cachet yeah. right there Apparently, Bernie Mac said that Steve Harvey tried to take his role, but then Steve Harvey later said that wasn't true, so I don't know about that. Ewan McGregor was considered for the Don Cheadle role, which I think could have been... I really like him on this season of Fargo. For the Rubin role, Sidney Pollack and Dennis Franz were considered. And then for Terry Benedict, for the Andy Garcia role, Warren Beatty, Michael Douglas, and Ray Fiennes were considered, so... Michael Douglas could have come back from traffic, but yeah, any of them I think could have been cool. I think Andy Garcia works. Absolutely. Like I said, I feel like he's he kind of is like the the Clooney doppelganger to me. Like I feel like once they cast them and they got them both on set, they're like, oh, look at this! Like slick their hair back, and they're they're both handsome, brooding guys. And then the last casting thing that I think I saw was that the Saul role, which is Carl Reiner, Alan Arkin was cast but dropped out, and Soderbergh wanted Don Rickles in that role, but I guess got Carl Reiner instead. Which I think I mean Carl Reiner's just perfect in this. 
Carmano's great, but Rickles was in Casino, the Scorsese film, so that might have been a little too referential, kind of. Like, they're already doing jabs at, like, their real-life personas through the, you know, like, it's it's actually before, like, a lot of that was in, like, mainstream comedy, where it's, like, this self-referential, like, breaking the fourth wall without looking at the camera kind of material. Uh, so Julia Roberts and Brad Pitt will return in his next movie in Full Frontal. And they also work together again the next year, I think, in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind and also in The Mexican. So they were in like four movies or more movies, including the sequels, like all in a really sort of clumped little group here. And then did you guys know that Soderbergh is in the movie? No. no. He is... I don't know if he's the one who makes the error or not, but when Basher is caught, he's one of the guys robbing that, or, you know, the bank thief with Don Cheadle. He's, like, in a mask or something, so... I had to Google, because I, I saw that, like, the director's cameo was, like, a bank thief. I was like, well, that could be, like, four different scenes in this movie. And so I had to Google image, and it's just some guy with a mask next to John Cheadle. So I don't know if somebody fell out, or they just, you know, he wanted to be on screen or whatever. But there's something I noticed this time that I don't know if it was intentional or not, but was Rusty's tattoo, the tattoo that Brad Pitt wears, was that supposed to be a reference to Clooney's tattoo in From Dust Till Dawn, that they're both, like, these huge, full tribal sleeves? I don't know. I didn't see anything about that. Maybe. I almost saw it as a, like, I wear this better than <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. moment. <laughs> yeah. Like, you did this, like, ten, like, a few years ago, almost ten years ago. Like, I'll do it now. Well, that's another thing that I read was that I think the two of them, and maybe at least one other person, maybe Damon, but, like, you have a couple of different people's sexiest man alive. So, like, who could possibly say that they wore something better than Clooney is, you know, Brad right, Pitt. Right, like, They're on this movie. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I think that's all my notes. There was so much trivia. Like, people love this movie. People love, you know, finding facts about this movie. So this was probably the most cool, interesting trivia that I had about any movie for any podcast that we've done. But I think I'm fully tapped out on everything now. Tell me anything else you want to say about Ocean's yeah, Eleven? just two things. One, we talked a little bit before we started recording about how the movie came out in 2001 in December, that it was a, a sort of Christmas time release. And I wonder if how much of that played into not not its not its popularity but its success you know trying to think back i just moved to new york just before 9-11 and and there was a a lot of questions in the movies the movie business like should we keep making movies you know like this whole sort of crazy trauma response and the idea that by december people would really want a, a high quality Hollywood entertainment. I'm sure this movie would have been successful either way, but the quality of success, the, the, the catharsis of this movie coming out so soon after, or within a few months of 9-11, I wonder if that played at all into how, how well it did. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts about that? I'm not sure. I don't know about that. I'm just looking. So the budget was 85. It made 183 domestic, but it made another 267 worldwide. So not only was it a hit here, but it was a hit around the world, which I feel like doesn't really track because that's usually for like action movies. And like there's so much comedy in this that I don't know why it would be such a hit around the world other than just you have like massive movie stars. You know what I mean? So I think it worked. I think that it because it's a good movie that's sort of painless, I guess you could say, and easy fun is exactly what America probably needed, but also its success around the world is just like, I think it was going to be a success no matter when, because when you have this many big names in it. I also bought this movie, I think, three times on DVD, like twice on DVD and then again on Blu-ray. I'm just contributing to this movie's success myself, so I think it's just, you know, it was always going to be a success as long as Soderbergh didn't screw it up or, you know, there wasn't massive ego battles on set. I think it was always going to be good and just came at the right time. 
and films were delayed, you know, and, and this was not one of them. So I wonder if that was speaking to its strength as well, you know, like it's just a lighthearted good time, you know, there's no real consequence here. No one's really getting hurt in the long run. And so therefore there's nothing offensive really about this. So yes, it would have been a success anyway, but I, I, I do feel like the climate may have contributed a little more than usual, just making it more of a sensation faster, perhaps. I, I feel like it would have done well in theaters, been probably exploded on home video, whereas it exploded in theaters and then just like skyrocketed after that into like a franchise. Yeah, the other thing, I, only other thing I wanted to say was, Joy, I was overjoyed to hear at the beginning of our conversation that you placed this uh, number two in your rankings after Out of Sight. I did the same thing, and I struggled, I struggled with that a little bit, but I thought I was going to get pushback from you, <laughs> from you on that, knowing how much you love this movie, but that's where I put it, too. I know. One thing I realized while watching this movie is how much of this I have memorized. Like, I have most of The Matrix memorized. I have a lot of Office Space memorized. But I didn't realize how many times I'd seen this movie until, like, I knew all of the one-liners. I just love this movie. But I think there's something special about Out of Sight. This movie is great, and I love it. But there's something about Out of Sight that's just, like, it just pushes even more of my buttons than this movie. It's really, like, one and one A. Like, I love both of them so much. And, you know, if I could make them both number one, I would. But, alas... I've seen about half of what's coming. I wonder if anything else will approach that. I don't think it will. I think that what I've seen is the stuff that I'm more inclined to love, but I'm going to keep an open mind and we'll see. Mike, do you have any other last thoughts? It's funny. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast how like I kind of, I tried to resist this. Like At the time it came out, I just wasn't in the mood for remakes. I'm still not a big remake guy, but like I actively tried not to see this until, you know, one day I just finally said, fine, I'll watch it. And it put me in the best mood, you know, and it really kind of changed my perspective. And it made me say like, you know, don't shun a movie, like give it a shot. And you know, that was what, like 16 years ago. I've always tried to see the movie before joining the conversation after that, you know, like I didn't, I didn't try and trash something before I saw it and I feel like I might have done that with this movie and I saw it and I just had to eat my hat and um, I never wanted to do that again and also like just the past couple days I've been going through some pretty tough screenings recently like, just <laughs> watching some horrible well, horrible movies I mean you're, you're going through tough screenings but like nobody told you that you needed to watch all the mummy movies leading up to the new mummy like, <laughs> no, no, like no, nobody's no. putting I know, their they, feet yes. to the fire and that's also another sort of spoiler for when we're recording this but like you just you do it to your yourself man and like just it's watch watch more movies like this like i realized <laughs> recently rewatching like wet hot and rewatching this and stuff that i just want to watch more movies that i love like there's yeah. so many that i love that i don't know why i subject myself to go see the mummy in theaters when i know that like everybody hates it, that you hate it so not only do the critics that i you know admire hate it but like like i respect your taste and you hate it like why do i go spend two hours on a sunday watching the mummy when i could like rewatch out of sight or something i don't know what's wrong with my brain i just i don't <laughs> and i think that's what i was kind of getting at too is after going through some bad screenings and then rewatching this and, you know, going from like, you know, the mummy tomb of the dragon emperor and wondering, you know, what is life? You know, does it even matter? And then watching Ocean's Eleven and going like everything is right in the universe once again. It just total a total change in my spirit. And it made me uh, once again remind myself to just don't waste my time watching 
bad movies if I know they're going to be bad. Like, why subject myself to that anymore? And so I don't think I will anymore. I'm just going to try and watch movies I hope are going to be good from the start and not watch things just because to be like a completist or anything, just to check it off a list. You know, I just I want to watch movies I like, and I really like this movie. Yeah, well said. So for all things Cinemakers and all things Cage Club and Keanu Club and all of our shows, cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, and at cageclubpod on Twitter. We are available, all of our shows are available to listen to and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. So however you want to listen to us, you can. So go listen to all of our things and come back next week for more Soderbergh. And we've got Oceans 12 in about six weeks, and we've got Oceans 13 in about two months. So lots more of these guys to come. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.